Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Art Tierce. Uh, it's August 10th, 2022. We're at the Archery Summit Guest House in Dundee. And thank you so much to Archery Summit for letting us have this space today. Uh, Art, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and our first question for you is why wine? All right. Um, this is definitely not the short answer, but good. it is the story. And I think the kind of like prolific symbolism and um, I think reason why I want to be in wine. But I was born in San Francisco. When I was very young, we moved to Santa Rosa, so the heartbeat of um, Sonoma County. And I joked that I lived there till I was 11, and like wine meant nothing to me as a kid. Like I loved the symmetry of the vineyards and vines. You know, I have lots of visual memories looking out the window as a kid driving down the 101. And but um, I joked that like my little league, you know, center field was a vineyard that was incredible. But going to wineries, like I. I as a kid, you hate them. Like, there was nothing to do for me. You know, your parents are tasting wine and eating cheese that, you know, you think is disgusting and repulsive. And um, so I just, I didn't have a real affinity to it. But from Las Ve- from Santa Rosa, we moved to Las Vegas. And um, my dad was working in real estate and wanting to pursue that. It was a booming market. And I think it was pretty normal. Like, Las Vegas, I say, like, I matured in Las Vegas. And it wasn't really a, you know, it wasn't like the Las Vegas Strip and hotels and all these things. But because I was there and I was always fascinated with food, I think that impression was built from my mom at a young age. Um, She was very thoughtful in what she fed us and how she presented it. She's Japanese and I think presentation is just very natural and um, in everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, almost ceremonial and the simplest things of life. So I think um, my attraction to food thought I wanted to go to culinary arts school and and that was the path that I wanted to do. And before enrolling, I worked in a restaurant and I wanted to tap into my Japanese heritage. And I thought working in a sushi restaurant would be the the best way I could do that. And very quickly, I realized that I was not set up for working in the kitchen and I had a work ethic. I played these sports my whole life, but I just, I did not... um, it was not for me, you know, scrubbing the floor sinks and the long hours with kind of no built up uh, understanding of what it took was definitely a, a, a shock for me. But I think what I did see in that time was the front of the house staff, like having the best time, like hanging out together and celebrating after work and toasting, you know, beverages. And I just I saw this kind of like I felt like I belonged over there. And, and so I think the idea of working in the front of the house led me to working in restaurants and that led me into wanting to go to school for um, hotel and restaurant hospitality management and UNLV has an incredible program in Las Vegas and all these things just seem to be lining up um, and I lucked out. I worked at an incredible restaurant on the Las Vegas Strip, you know, I was 19 and um, quickly while being there, I saw the importance of wine and, and you know, uh, an opportunity for selling wine and um, how it enhanced meals and it was a seafood restaurant so this emphasis on white wine and you know 800 bottle list and all these things an advanced sommelier working the floors I just I fell in love with what was happening in that and and shortly after being like I'm from a wine growing region I should maybe know about this and then I think enrolling in a wine class and taking a wine class really just kind of like magnified the impression of what wine could be 
Um, so from there, I think what happened is I got really into wine. I think I was fortunate enough to be young and hip and pulled into the uh, after hours work hang sessions that, um, you know, I was not of age. So I felt special to be a part of that. But there was this real opportunity that was very casual for them, but really, really kind of um, special to me to be able to just drink wine with these professionals after hours. And um, sometimes they would raid the cellar in ways that I probably shouldn't admit where I worked at or what we were <laughs> drinking. But it was just this impression I was getting to taste all these things. And, you know, I joke like the Psalms, like their kind of like go to beverage after work was like a beer and a shot. And I was so young and impressionable. I was like, I, I can't afford the wine by, we pour by the glass. Like I'm always just hitting the Napa Cab or the Pinot Noir or whatever it was and trying to like paint an impression on why these things tasted different and, and making sure that opportunity to taste those wines every day. And um, that suddenly just, I felt the idea that like wine was really important. And then I had that epiphany bottle. And I think that happens to a lot of people where you just have this one wine that just blows your mind one day. And, and it was, um, it was a bottle of William Selium uh, Allen Vineyard from 2003. It was a Russian River Pinot Noir. And, you know, my joke was like, I was just so moved by this wine from the Russian River, the background of like where I grew up. And, you know, for me, the Russian River was like the public bathroom that you would use when you were like playing in the water. Like that was kind of the joke, you know, we called the Russian River for a reason. And, um, and then suddenly, you know, I was just, I was so moved by this wine and the way it was, it, it just struck something in me that I had to know more. I had to know why. Um, and so in really what, what happened from there is I just, I lost track of studies with a sole focus on wine. Um, and then we had a change in guard at the restaurant that I worked at and a new aunt Somali came in and he was definitely from a different background. He was a father and a family man. And um, I think he saw somebody who was impressionable and really curious and definitely putting themselves out there. And, and, uh, and so he pulled me into that situation and I got to do inventory with him a lot. And, um, and then through his studies, while he was in the master program, he brought another advanced sommelier into the restaurant who was going to um, help him, you know, with his studies. And they were both going for their masters together. And the wines that they started opening just started really lighting me up in a lot of ways. And they were very generous with their wealth. But it was that um, assistant sommelier that mentioned to me, she's like, you know, if you like it so much, why don't you go work at a winery? And I just, that had never crossed my mind. I never thought, like, work at a winery. Like, oh, I'm thinking about maybe going to school to work at a winery. Like, I, maybe I'll go study enology or viticulture or something, but I, I don't, like, can you just go work at a winery? And you know, she was like, yeah, be a seller at. I was like, well, what, what is that? Like, that doesn't, I don't know what that means. And she explained to me and she explained how she had worked a number of harvests. And she was like, you really, you're curious. Like, if you think you want to go to school, the same thing as kind of working in a restaurant, like you should go get that experience and make sure it's right for you. Mm-hmm. And so I connected with somebody um, from Santa Rosa, who was a family friend who was had their own private business, not in wine, but were, most of their clients were in the wine industry. And we would talk about this a lot. And, um, her, you know, reference was like, Hey, can you connect me with somebody to maybe work a harvest? I, I don't think I can work the whole time. I've been kind of hearing that maybe a sparkling harvest is a process that I could see a lot happening. And once I, I could probably take three weeks off of work and, and you know, that's my vacation time. And, um, I would happily go and, and get in this experience. And they're like, Oh yeah, certainly like whatever you want. Like, and the question was, was like, what's your epiphany wine? And I thought like, Oh, I, I mean, I keep hearing this word and I, I have one. I have a story to tell about that. And so I explained, I was like, it's this bottle of William Selium. And so, okay, cool. 
okay, cool. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get back to you. And, you know, I'd check in with her. I was really anxious. Like, I, I want to go. And, you know, she's like, don't worry, I'm, I'm working on it. I think I found you something. And funny, she calls me and she's like, hey, I got, I got you an internship. They even can provide you housing. You know, you can come for as little time as you want. They hope you stay more than a week. Um, but, yeah, you can come in and join the process. I said, okay, that's fantastic. What's it called? She said, it's called Papa Pietro Perry. I said, who the what the, like, never heard of it. And for a moment, it was like, I thought I was going to go to William Selium, But um, in a lot of ways, I was like, you know what? If they're willing to take me in, like, this is my chance, and this is so cool, and I can't wait. Um, and so I remember going, and I took a friend of mine with me, and we went on this, like, three-week road trip, and we spent a couple weeks in Sonoma. And we showed up at the winery one day, and immediately they're like help us with a loaded round of punch downs and then they're like go home and get some rest and we're going to do it all over again tomorrow and you know that first day I was like so excited and they're basically just like handing me the pressure washer gun and like clean all these bins and we're like I've never used this thing before but let's do it and it felt like a lot of fun and you know we do a round of punch downs and then and then we take this epic three-hour siesta and you just like we'd eat this amazing meal and they'd open all these bottles and we're just sharing and it just felt like it felt magical in a lot of ways. And then what happened from there is, you know, most of them would take a nap and I was too anxious and excited. So I was like, we're gonna work. But then I didn't realize that, you know, from that noon at 12.30 to three o'clock break, like from there, it was like till midnight, you know, immediately followed by another round of punch downs. And, but the, seeing the process the first day, I was like, I, I mean, when I went to bed that night, I like, I couldn't sleep. I was excited. Like it, it felt like there was the championship game the next day where you just couldn't wait for that opportunity to do it again. And, uh, and then sure enough on the second day, you know, we're chatting with the team a little bit more. And the associate winemakers asked me, they say like, you know, we know who got you the, the job here, but um, why did she get you a job here? <laughs> and I was like, you know, I'm asking myself that same question. I told them, I told this person that the wine, my epiphany wine was a bottle of William Selium from 2003, the Allen Vineyard, you know, this Russian River Pinot Noir. And they kind of just took a step back and they were like, whoa, that's really cool. I said, yeah, it was, a, it was an incredible wine. They're like, no, no, no. We were the associate winemakers at William Selium in 2003. Like we made your epiphany bottle. And this is in 2009. It was just like, that moved me. It just felt like you know, I felt all the hairs in my body. I'm telling it right now and I can feel it like, but it just sent this like energy through my body that was like something special about the wine industry, the people in it. I thought I had an impression of what it took to get there. Um, and you know, these guys, they all studied different things. They just, they found wine in the same way I did, like curiosity and passion and interest and then stuck with it. And, mm -hmm. and that's, um, at that moment I was like, I'm going home and I'm gonna, save as much money as I can and I'm packing up and I'm moving to wine country because I got to work in wine so mm -hmm. and that's that's why I'm in wine so before we pick up the story there I'm, I'm curious about you mentioned your wine education and a very interesting wine education from the from the kind of the front of house and mm -hmm. and, and sommelier side so tell me about as you were learning wine, what did you find most appealing? What, what did you start to kind of hone in on in terms of style and producer region? And how did you find yourself learning wine and understanding it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'll openly admit, that's why I'm a college dropout. I'm a terrible student. So <laughs> I think just sitting with books and reading didn't work for me. And I think practical experience, I think like being hands-on, touching things, experiencing them and creating a data bank in my memory about 
what that experience was, like that worked for me. And so I think wine tasting, at first it was just like sipping like anything, like evaluation, like, oh, that that's the most expensive, so it's the best, you know? And immediately putting a holy grail on some wines that I never got to taste, but they were just the most expensive wines on the list. And like, I know those producers and I can rattle them off. I, I know nothing about them, but like, um, but having the chance to work with like a really deep wine list and then I think the opportunity to take um, you know I would say in that wine tasting class I learned the basics the basic six you know the three main white varietals the red varietals kind of places of origin nothing really blew my mind none of the wines compared to what we were pouring at the restaurant but the second sommelier that came in I think his education program that he put in place it's just like we took a couple classes with the previous sommelier they were very basic one sheeters you know standard font just the punchline of what the you know not even scratching the surface of what things were and then the second somebody like he built a binder you know and we had three-hour classes regularly I mean almost bi-weekly and it was just building this Rolex and I think this is how he was seeing it from his angle how to become a master was if he could teach others to Mm -hmm. get to where he is that was the path and um, I mean it just there wasn't enough information, but I was digesting all of it. And I think the combination of spending a lot of free time reading, and then I think just the awareness of like, I mean, I, I remember anytime something was poured for me, I would just spend time with it. Or suddenly, instead of like being a person who always drank a, a Budweiser after work, like I, I can never order the same thing twice. Like I just had to try the next thing. And then that translated into like beer tasting and taste spirits tasting and ordering cocktails that like you know I had to like plug my nose to drink but like I just like thought like I just needed to know all the things and um that curiosity really I mean in some ways never stopped but that was a big a big part of it and then I specifically remember being like you know when you wine can be intimidating at first so when you're talking about tasting notes and all these different things I I remember being like "I, I don't know what any of that is but I would you know, if I had a day off, I might go to spend four hours at a Whole Foods, like opening every jar of like every single spice and touching fruits and smelling them. And then remember like constantly repeating this because, you know, you learn that the things change with the seasons and different citrus come out. And I remember the first time I saw Buddha's hand and I'd seen it late listed on the label of a bottle of vodka, but I had to go to the store to find out what it was. And I remember buying one and cutting it in half and then being like, oh, okay it's not a it's not about the flesh in the middle it's just these oils and you know the the peel like that mm-hmm. things like that so I was definitely I think how I thrived um especially at that time because a lot of that you could just do on your own and this is before I really knew about like I mean in college there was a wine tasting class and you know at the restaurant there was a really in-depth wine programming class but outside of that I didn't know that there was programs that you could do you know other than the court of Massa which was really a two-day crash course to take a test to try and advance yourself. So um, it was pretty clear to me at that time that it was a lot of self-study. And, and I was just finding, like, maybe the the most affordable route. But when you know all the the produce people at Whole Foods and they're like, oh, he's back again. He's going to touch everything and he's not going to buy a single thing. Like, maybe an apple, but um, it was fun. And what were you learning at that time about um, sort of selling wine and what, what, what appealed to customers and how, how wine was sold at a, at a restaurant like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it, I, it always took stepping back or being away from that situation to have a, a better lens on it. And maybe I think that came through experience because, again, in wine, I, I really believe in it's the journey. It's not, there are a lot of people that are just like chasing the direct path and trying to get there as fast as they can. And 
I quickly realized that, you know, I saw enough master sommeliers that I saw young hotshots, and I saw who, people who I thought were masters, like they were older, very wise, very composed, always presenting in a way that was gracious and kind, and I was just like, that that's the guy. So if that guy is 60, 70 years old, like, I'm, I'm in my early 20s, I got all the time in the world to get there. Um, but one thing I always talk about is like, I mean, I worked in this killer seafood restaurant that had a raw bar and I learned, I mean, I probably tasted 200 different types of oysters while I worked there and all these elements of the seasonality and the fish that could come in during the seasons and the differences of place and where these things and the importance of, you know, organic produce and just all these things. When we put them together, at the end of the day, it was Las Vegas and I sold far more cake bread Chardonnay and far more Napa Cab and, and definitely New World Pinot Noir than anything else, but when I have used the old wine list as a study reference, you know, I always just kind of am dumbfounded, like, we had that? <laughs> or, holy moly, or, and there was so much white burgundy on that menu, and so many cool, incredible white wines that, you know, they were just, I think the recognition of wine culture at that time, and definitely in a place like Las Vegas, where a lot of it is about wealth and expense, and like, people wanted things that cost more or flashy, and, you know, I think about how many times I served, I mean, I served Napa Cab, and somebody had, you know, a, a, a seafood steak, which essentially, I mean, sometimes that works really well, but, um, or how many times I served vodka Red Bulls, and, you know, somebody was having a prefix menu, and that's what they drank the whole time, and I was like, at a certain point, I was like, man, this just doesn't make sense. But again, I, I didn't even know what the possibilities were then. Mm -hmm. So So you found your way to wine country and you're and you're in the kind of the harvest, the harvest, you're wrapped in harvest. So tell me about the rest of that experience and, and what kind of as you're as you're in it, what you're sort of thinking about comes next. Yeah, I um, it was. It was a blast. I, I definitely saw most of the processes from sorting a little bit sort of fruit you know the just continuation of pressing and or punch downs and fermentations and inoculations and pressing um mostly cleaning bins with a pressure washer but getting to see, be around all of that and see it and then see some different varietals there was um you know i was too young to really understand the, the business side of things but one of the reasons those associate winemakers were there is because they can make their own wine there and they were buying what they could afford and you know they a couple of them had Syrah and a couple of them had Cabernet Sauvignon and it was kind of fun to taste those grapes and see them side by side and um, I thought a lot the only thing I could kind of describe it to everybody when I came back was like it felt like adult summer camp in the best way I mean you know you're making friends you're working hard you're working really really hard physically probably harder than I've ever worked and doing a lot of labor in a way that like moving heavy equipment and moving things that I just had never had experience with but I loved it you know and I, I can compare it to like when I remember the first time I scrubbed a floor sink and I was just disgusted and I was like I don't think I can work in the back of the house but I was like I don't know if I can physically do this job but I in some ways like it's so rewarding and it feels so good that I want to keep going with this and and so yeah it just it was I think the what we were putting in was physically really intense and hard but what we were getting out of it was fueling that fire to come back the next day and like and still kind of like losing sleep and I remember the last day that I was there I was like I'm I, I, I don't want this to end and and you know granted it wasn't over but I had to return to real life and um so in that I was like I this is for me I have to do this and I at the end of that trip we drove north and we left Sonoma and we went to Portland 
to visit some friends and um, I knew there was a wine region out here and I was really into it. I was like, oh, maybe we can get there. But at this point we had extended our trip in Sonoma by a couple of days because we liked it and we wanted to stay. And um, so we had a short in our Portland trip. So we drove to Portland for just a couple of nights and hung out. And um, I had a blast in the city and I was like, the city's so fun and people are energetic. And I remember in my head like, okay, well there's a wine region outside of Portland and I, I've had some wines from Willamette Valley and like maybe maybe that's it. But I, I really like I wanna go back to Sonoma and work with these people who I just got the chance to work with and I'm twenty two. I I wanna still party and like be young and meet people from all over the world and particularly like because I was a college dropout I, I needed to have a place to meet, you know, love interest and uh and the bars, it seemed like a place to be. And I was like, I really liked bartending. I, and that was another factor of my kind of wine studies was I was always into spirits and cocktails as well. So in my eyes, the best situation possible would be like, if I could have a place to stay in San Francisco and bartend in San Francisco on the weekends and make a healthy income that I could work maybe for free or somehow volunteer time to work in the wine industry in Sonoma. But I remember being in Portland and everybody I'd meet and people were really friendly. I'd be like, hey, cool, how, do, where do you live? Like, what's your living situation? How much do you pay for rent? And I just come to be like, well, that's not very much. Like, you know, a couple hundred bucks for a bedroom or a, a basement of a, you know, house. Like, okay, okay. And I remember having previously asked, before even this trip to, to Sonoma, like asking people in San Francisco and they'd be like, oh, it's so expensive. Like, okay. Okay, like how expensive? They're like really expensive, you know, like, no, but what's really expensive? They're like thousands of dollars. And you're like, oh yeah, I, I don't know if I can afford that, but like maybe I can, we'll, I'll figure it out. And so when I wound up back home and I was like, okay, I'm gonna give myself one year. I gotta make sure that I wrap things up so I'm ready to be, you know, in the middle of, or beginning of August, like in California, ready to like work harvest. Um, I that was kind of like, was like the, I, I'm just set on this plan and that's what I have to do. Um, it perfectly worked out of how I worked out, wound up in the Willamette Valley is that I met the uh, love interest, the love partner of my life, who is now my wife. And, um, you know, shortly after returning, I bumped into her at a bar and um, started talking to her. And we had all these things in common and people in our lives that were important to us that, um, you know, I think we had past each other in households and parties and are for five or six years and just never met until that night and it seemed energetic and magical but she was like I'm moving to Portland and I was like oh yeah I'm thinking about moving to Portland too I was trying to sound cool I'm thinking about moving to Portland and uh and then um you know in my head I was like well okay and when I kept pursuing this gal and she ended up I mean she was literally moving to Portland she left three weeks later um and I was like I don't know if the long distance thing's gonna work. I was trying to be cool, but um, in that, I was like, I, I think that it just answered the question that I had of like where I'm gonna go next. And if in truth, like my dream is to work in Sonoma and you know bartend in San Francisco, like I started visiting Portland, um, you know, because of the scout, and I was like, no, like Port, like I'm Portland's the place. Like there's this great bar scene, there's this great like beverage culture, and all these things that I'm interested in, and. Um, more importantly, I mean, this love interest is there and like, it seems like I can afford it. So I definitely, I shot down that path. Um, and I don't think it's been bad. Like I got married to that beautiful girl and, uh, and we have children together. And then like, you know, I've been working in the wine industry ever since. So. 
before you were in Oregon, you mentioned you'd had some, you had some Oregon wine. What was yeah. your impression of Oregon wine before you were here? Yeah, I mean, I, it was very good. I, we, the sommelier that was, I was being mentored by, um, came to Oregon Pinot Camp and he, it was funny. He actually was like, Hey, I, while at Oregon Pinot Camp, I ran into the guys that you worked with at, in California. And we started putting their wines on the list. And that, I always thought that was like, if you could carry their wine, that would be great. And, you know, eventually that bottle stood on the list and it became like my go-to, like, let me introduce you to the story and here's my personal connection to it. And, um, and I saw how easy that was, you know, if you have a personal connection to something, your customers, I mean, you, you know, I always say like hospitality is built on trust, but, and you need to establish that trust in seconds. But like, if you do, like it's, you can share your story and people are really into it. I mean, in a way that it's like, they want to be a part of that story of your life. And so I sold a lot of Papi Ridge Perry at that restaurant. Um, but his also having gone to Oregon Pinot Camp, he met a bunch of producers and he tasted a bunch of wine. And we went from like Oregon, which in most places would say like, yeah, we have Oregon Pinot Noir. We have one. And you know, this is a list that has 800 bottles and like we had a full page pretty quick. Um, so there were producers, I mean, there was a lot of presence from obviously Ken Wright and a number of single vineyard bottlings, um, King Estate. I mean, a big part of our program was built on sustainability. You had to be sustainable, organic or biodynamic, certified or at least insured um, in a way that you practice. Um, and there had to be a commitment, you know, in kind of a, um, a stamp of approval from the properties. And, you know, King Estate was a big leader in sustainability, Soko Blosser. So that made sense, but I think because Oregon is really embodied that side of viticulture, and, and I think just awareness of connection of humans and land and the responsibility factor of that, that um, it was easy to fill that, that list out really quick. Um, Tori Moore was another producer that we sold a lot of, and um, Patricia Green. Um, yeah, it was, I, I it seemed like it was never ending. And um, I, you know, I remember, trying Brick House for the first time, and I was like, oh, this must be Burgundy. And then like seeing the actual bottle that we were tasting, and then I was like, oh, this is from Oregon. Like, that's so cool. And this wine's so light in color, but um, it was it was a fun time. And the, the vintages, you know, that we were pouring at that time were 05 to 07. So there was also this impression that were comparable to a lot of the wines that I was used to having, particularly from the Russian River or the Central Coast of California, there were differences. And that kind of struck me in a way that I remember being at a tasting and um, Patty Green was pouring and she was like really proud of the 07 vintage. And a lot of people, I didn't, hadn't read the critic, you know, reviews of these things and I didn't really pay attention to that angle, like sc points and scores and all that. Um, and I remember, you know, her, her pride of like, well, this wine kind of looks like, I mean, it's totally see-through and it's very light in color. And she just talked about embracing the challenges and, um, I, that felt very real to me. And I was like, this is cool. Like, I, you know, I don't, you never know what you're going to get in some ways. And, but, um, you know, there are real people behind it that, that felt special. So when you found yourself in, in Portland, uh, what were you sort of thinking you would do in wine? What was your goal in wine? Yeah, I, I um, when I arrived in 2010, I had a, I like to think that I have a straight plan and like, or at least I'm like, I have to have a focus and it can be a five-year plan and all these things can change, but there needs to be a path forward. Um, and so 
my wife would want me to tell you, and it, it is the truth. But first and foremost, I was like, I want to develop this relationship. But in my career in wine, I wanted, um, I was like, I, I got to I gotta work at Harvest. I got to see it from beginning to end. And then ideally, I want to work like five. And hopefully after the first couple, I will know if this is really for me. Like, would school be a requirement? And, and you know, I... I wanted to complete school. My parents wanted me to complete school. They never challenged me in the way that, like, are you going to get a real job? Like, they, they, my mom loved food and she respected restaurants. Um, but, you know, they were just like, you should just, like, please pursue the thing that you want to and see it all the way through. It's like, I, okay, I, I got to work a harvest. So um, immediately it was like, that's the first thing. And then I got to pay the bills. And I also am very, you know, in 2010, like that, we were only in this, like, cocktail renaissance at that time. And, I had done the introduction course with the Court of Masters and Lays, but I'd also taken a mixology course, and um, I had kind of mentors on both sides. And, you know, they seemingly kind of fit together, but they are two different worlds. But I was like, I, I think I can coexist in both these spaces. So I want to work in a cocktail bar, and I knew the bar that I wanted to work at in Portland, and, uh, and then I wanted to, you know, find a, a gig to work Harvest, and then I needed a bar that would hire me full-time, and but let me basically take a season off which doesn't really exist and um, but I, I did I found that and I found it pretty easily which was um, cool to say about the community in Portland at the time I mean it was so welcoming and granted I was showing a major interest and I probably visited at least six or seven times so I had met enough people that were like yeah yeah like if you come here we'll set you up or you know I was starting to pay attention to the the um United States Bartenders Guild chapters and Portland had one so it was like making sure I connected with people there before I arrived and and what was wild is that when I landed in Portland it was I mean I figured I think it was like a Wednesday or Thursday and Friday I went to the bar to meet the guy that I was supposed to meet which is Jeffrey Morgenthaler and he's our famous mixologist in Portland you know author a brilliant person um, and I like showed up at happy hour on on Friday and I was like what is happening in this place? And it was just packed. And I was like, you know, and I was smart enough to be like, hey, I'm the guy that's supposed to meet you, but I'm going to come back on another day and I'll just have a cocktail for two. And he was like, that's a smart move. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. So you tell me, you name the, the, the time and place and I'll, I'll be there. Um, so he told me to come back the next Monday. And he's like, you know, this hour usually works on Monday, does not work on Friday. Um, so I had a couple of those just cocktails at Clyde Common. And then I came back the next Monday and I had a legal pad and I was just like going to ask him every question. And he was kind of heckling me like, all right, kid, like you're just sitting here like, what are you, what are you looking for? Like, I know who you were, who told you to come talk to me. That person's very important. Like, what is it that you're looking for? So I need a job. He's like, okay, what's your background? And I just kind of laid it out and he was like, stop right now. I'm going to send a text message and I want you to walk over to this bar right now because I know that person's there and I want you to introduce yourself and he's looking for somebody immediately and he'll get you a job. And I was like, really? Well, I want to work here. And he's like, man, I've never seen you work. Like, I know who referred you here, but I got to, I mean, this is, this is a top tier bar in Portland. Like you got to, you got to earn it to get here. And I said, like, okay, cool. So he sent me to this place and this was like in the middle of May. And I was wearing, you know, normal, like a short sleeve shirt and some pants. And suddenly I was like, it looks like it's going to rain. It looked kind of like this. And I was like, mm. and I started walking and it was like, well, he said, go straight there. So I didn't want to be late. And I didn't realize that like in Portland, like, you know, when it rains, it showers, but it stops. And so I just like marched through the pouring rain with no umbrella. And I like, got to the restaurant. And it was blue hour. And it was like, oh, this place looks kind of nice. 
Like, it looks pretty nice. I'm looking at myself in the, just the mirror from outside. I'm like, I'm dr I could wring my clothes out right now. Like, I can't go in there. And I'm like, oh, no, like, this guy's going to think I'm a flake. But I didn't go in. And then I came back the next day, and I asked him. And they're like, oh, he'll be back on Thursday. And I came in on Thursday. And I was like, hey, I'm the guy, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, okay. He's like, you should, uh, uh, I remember you. I had met him at the Teardrop Lounge on one of those visits. And he was like, you're hired. I was like, okay. He's like, I mean, you have the background, you have the interest. Like, we'll start you, you know, in these shifts. But, like, you have a job. And I was like, whoa, I've been in Portland for less than a week. And I just got a job. Like, this is awesome. And the very next day, he asked me to come in and meet the owners. And um, I met Bruce Carey. And uh, I thought he was great. And, um, it was like, things are going to start really well. And then the next thing I was like, I got to, I got to get a, a, a harvest gig. Like, and I had been bugging a few people that I'd met. Um, they were, you know, now I know they were winemakers, so they weren't answering their emails or like returning phone calls. And I was just like, oh, they don't like me, but it's just being busy and an independent owner and a million things to do. It's, it's hard to answer that stuff. So I get it. Um, but I, that Sunday, they were like, you should come to this tasting, the bar guild. Like you've been interested in this. We have a tasting on Sunday, come see it. Um, and there's a local producer that's going to be there. And I walked in on Sunday and I showed up early cause I wanted to be, I wanted to show my responsibility. And this guy walks immediately up to me and he's like, Hey, how are you? How you been? And I was like, Oh, this guy has no idea who I am, but he's nice. And so <laughs> I'm just shooting, talking to this guy or chatting, tell him about where I got a job. And I'm like, I feel like I'm talking to this guy. Like he knows me. And I'm like, he certainly doesn't know me. I've been in Oregon for just over a week, um, but his name was Tad Seedstead, and he was the owner of Ransom Severitz and Ransom Wine Company, and he, I noticed on the bar, I was like, oh, look, he's got wine, and then suddenly, the, just the room filled, and it was the four o'clock hour, and they're like, all right, we're going to have this, like, tasting, and Tad just had a very casual way about him to talk about his spirits, and he had a new gin coming into the market, and everybody was, we were tasting the spirits, and I was just like, wow, this room of all these people, like, are so thoughtful in how they taste spirits like wine. I mean, you only, I didn't really know spirits tastings happened like that, and um, and people could be so thoughtful and serious and professional, and I was just like, I, I feel like I'm in the right place. We're tasting all these spirits. Of course, we tasted grappa. Um, it was delicious, and then, you know, after that, he was like, hey, does anybody want to try some wines? I brought some wines and my joke, which really did happen. And I think there was two factors. So it was Sunday, it was like five o'clock. I mean, the room just cleared out. Some people probably had to go to work. That was a big part of it. Had shifts. Other people were just like, it's my day off and it's getting in the evening, like I got to go. But I mean, the room quickly went from 30 to 40 people to like three. But I was like, I'm here and I'm happy to taste some wine. And he's like, yeah, let's try something. And so he opened a couple bottles and he clearly knew most people in the room. and. Uh, but he opened a couple of bottles of wine and we tasted it. And I was like, I'm going to just take my chance. I was like, hey, I, I moved here only a week ago. And he was like, okay, cool. And I was like, and um, I'm, I'm looking for a harvest gig and I really want to work in the wine industry. And he was like, okay, cool. Like, here's my information and reach out to me. And he told me, he was like, I'm really bad about getting back to you. So hound me, send me emails. You can't send too many. Call me, leave voicemails. No, not too many. Don't call me every day, but like, <laughs> make sure you're checking in. I mean, it's early. It's May, and we're looking at September, October. I was like, okay, I, I will do that. And I kept, I did it. I mean, I called him a lot, but I also, in that period of time, had a number of opportunities where like, I casually ran into him at another event, um, and I casually ran into him 
or we got invited to camp out at his property and you know that was a great opportunity to like imbibe a little bit with him and get to know him a little more personal and I was like hey did I make the cut you know and he's like yes like if you want to work with us you can come work with us and so that felt really um it felt like everything was working in the way that it, it you know the best scenario like mm -hmm. you know in within being in Oregon for a couple months like I mean it was a week before I got a job at a pretty nice place that was like making good money and having a time and connecting with people and meeting a lot of people and then you know about two months later like I lined up a harvest gig and I got to start working for this gentleman and then I essentially never left <laughs> like so tell me about that experience with Tad that year and how it compared yeah. to your sort of previous wine experience? Yeah, I mean, it was, so he thought, I w they thought I was crazy. And 2010 was a late harvest. Like, I mean, the references, like I showed up to, in California in 2009, the end, August 25th, and I worked for two weeks and it was warm and it was great. Um, and, you know, my first day at Ransom was October, I think 19th or 20th. That That's different, like almost two months later. Um, I camped out at that property in California, so I brought my tent. And they were like, don't camp out here, it's gonna rain. I was like, yeah, I mean, I got a tent, like it can handle rain, and I brought extra blankets, and they're like, it's not really, like, yeah, okay, <laughs> do it. Um, and so the first, I remember my first day, like we processed a bunch of fruit, we worked late, but it was still pretty early in, so we were, you know, really kind of wrapped up by like 8, 8.30, and I was like, all right, I'm set up, and I'm going to cook some food inside, and then I'll go to my tent, and I, it just started raining, and it was raining so loud, you know, the tin-sided uh, roofs so was just like, oh, it's like echoing in this winery, and I remember walking out to my tent, and I didn't seal it all the way, and my sleeping bag flooded, and then I was like, well, I don't know what else to do, but I slept in it, and it was like, I got sick and it was miserable. Um, and they were just like, you really shouldn't do that. But after that, it, things kind of dried out and things were really, really beautiful and prolonged. I mean, I it was like, it was mild all the way through like the middle of November. And I was like, if this is interesting, this is like a long fall, this is what makes the area so special. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely, it was not the camp environment. I remember the next year when they invited me to come back, they were like, we have a place for you to stay under a roof and <laughs> in a bed and you're not gonna sleep outside. Um, but that was, I mean, the big difference there also was just, you know, those first couple days, I remember being like, I was I was not from here. So I had every layer of clothes I had possibly. And I also had the mindset that you had to, I just always wanted to do physical work in shorts. Um, and I, I, you know, soon later bought my first pair of Carhartt pants because I was like, my shins were getting scuffed up, but it was cold. You know, I always tell people, I'm like, you know, you work enough harvest in Oregon, you either spend them in shorts and a t-shirt in the sunshine, and it's the absolute best, and then you're, you know, got insect pressure, like yellow jackets are everywhere, and I've been stung in my mouth before, and like, you know, they fly up your shorts, and that's that's annoying, <laughs> but you're in the sun, or you make wine in, you know, an environment like this where it's much cooler, your hands are freezing because you're wet all the time and every photograph you can see your breath in it, you know, and every meal is like sitting at a table, like it's a warm stew and you're wearing a beanie and your jacket and your vest and you're just trying to stay as warm as you can. Those are the two variables, like rarely are they in the middle. Um, so that was a big, that was a big eye opener. 
you mentioned you came back for harvest the next year. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about as they're kind of as it progressed. Uh, how did the harvest play out for you? Obviously, 2011 was another challenging sure. harvest. Mm -hmm. um, at what point did you kind of start making decisions about if this was something for you? Yeah, this is a good, great. Um, so in 2011, still involved in like bartending, I got a job at the Teardrop Lounge in Portland, and that was like. Uh, an, a very like I looked at that bar as like the major leagues like they were doing things and getting accolades and you know most of the guys there would compete in bartender competitions and I was aware that that was a thing and there was a circuit of that and it was like I, I want to be a part of that but I also want to be part of this wine thing and I, I, I want to balance both and um, you know 2011 having a full year here and kind of seeing the whole process of harvest I wanted to see the whole process of wine so it's like I, I need to see like the other elements, which I don't really even know what those are in the off season. And the one thing I did pay attention to was like the weather. And I was like, man, I mean, it, everybody told me that, you know, the first day of summer is July 4th. And I was like, I think I might joke. It's like, I got a sunburn on August 1st, but on September 1st, it started raining again. And I was like, this is miserable. And when I went and worked that year, I mean, it was, it was different. Like there was, the tonnage was really low. He was he wanted me to work with the team, but like I, instead of working four days a week, was working three at the winery and I didn't even have to change my shift at the bar. I was crazy. I would work those opposite hours and seven days a week for a period of time, but it was a pretty short harvest. Mm. And, um, and in that I was like, well, I feel like I need to get another one. Like I liked what we made. I thought the wines were definitely lighter. And I think the impression of the two, but 2010 was also a year where it was, um, you know, it was cooler and, and, and longer in the season. I think it was a little more spread out. Wasn't up against that kind of like rain pressure and, um, but, and we sorted a lot more fruit, I would say, I remember that. But, but in 2011, I was like, okay, like, I feel like I need to get one more year. And then in that, I was like, I'm working at the Teardrop Lounge. Like I need to put one year into this place. And I started in January. So by harvest, I'd been there for 10 months. I'd had drinks on the menu. I'd competed in some bartender competitions. I'd won a couple things. Like I was like, I, I can, I'm like in this place where like, I'm really curious what's happening in wine, but I think I'm making a career in bartending. And I think that is the direction I really need to go. And so I was putting in my wife's head because when I did land in Portland, it was all about like, I wanted to make wine. I wanted to pursue this relationship, but I was convincing her like, it was like, I'm on like a two or three year plan. Like I kind of from here, might want to go somewhere else to one of these other booming cities where there's a great like food and beverage scene and just see something else and maybe maybe it works out that there's another wine region there but maybe it doesn't and it, you know i'm i'm making i knew i remember what i was getting paid to be a harvest intern you know what i was making working at a fancy bar like i was like we should go in that direction and i thought seattle was the, the move but i also was really attracted to san francisco and i didn't have friends living in san francisco that were like Yes, rent can be this high, but you can also find safe places. Like, and <laughs> you can make of it what you want. And like, I was meeting people through the teardrop that were in those places, and they're like, "Oh yeah, like, there's this great scene, and definitely find you work, and you can definitely plug into some you know fancy spots." And it's like, okay, so this that might be my path. Um, but I was like, if I get the opportunity to work one more harvest, like I just want to finish that season. If at the end of that harvest I get offered a full-time job maybe I would consider staying here. And my wife was of both minds, like, I don't care, like we can move somewhere else. Like I, we're in this relationship together. I want to support you where you want to go, but I also want to support her and her career path too. And, um, you know, she's like, but it, I, I see that like wine's a special thing. And like, we would talk about 
walking through vineyards or getting the chance to raise our kids in like on a farm like which neither of us had farming you know experience in our background but just like the dream of that um and so we um i remember going into the 2012 harvest which that year was like things were great we were really active in the summer we're doing all sorts of stuff we got to travel quite a bit and then we had the moment where um she I got a phone call from Tad Seedstead and he was like hey I want to talk about your future and it was like oh I think this is it and so I went and had a conversation with him and he was like I'm growing and I need another person full time on my team that can stay and I'll teach you just about everything I know and um I'll give you the place to like to do that and then I was like okay yeah let's, that sounds great and he's like and then we'll talk about pay later <laughs> I was like so I got really I got he he lured me in on the dream um but yeah I remember going back to Portland and telling my wife and we went to have dinner and we ordered a bottle of Ransom Pinot Noir and like she was she was in she was like you should do that let's stay and so then the, the plan definitely went a different direction um so so getting full-time into wine after all of that time kind of straddling, uh, I'm, I'm curious, what did you at that time foresee for yourself coming next? And what were your initial impressions as you started to be in wine more regularly and, more, and outside of the harvest year? Yeah, I mean, I think I was curious to know what winemakers do in the off season, <laughs> which quickly turned into like working on the building, building new buildings, we were planting a vineyard, so I got to see a lot of that, like, you know, how it worked, symmetrically getting to spend some time digging some holes for the crudelet plants, irrigation set up, like trellising set up. And that was, the, I liked that. It was kind of like building stuff in their hands. I had zero skills, but I, I could do the work. Um, and and then bottling, like seeing the process of blending, like all of those things was like, I, I romanticized them. I was like, that, that seems special. That seems really, really good. Um, and then the, um, and then I think in my mind a little bit was like still maybe the possibility of going back to school a little bit. And I was like, I, I don't know. I mean, so many things have worked out so far. I, I don't know if that's where I need to go. Um, and I definitely had the mindset of like, I don't know if I can afford it on the wages. But um, it was a big transition from nightlife and bartending to like and having just a disposable income that was like constant to working in the wine industry and working hourly and um and then feeling like it required sacrifices to make it but i um in my head was like i'm gonna i'm gonna make it i mean I, whatever it takes and so i mean that first year i worked in the wine industry out here i definitely had a transitional pay uh change and like I mean, I, I felt like I was just working to pay for gas to drive from Portland to Lane Valley. So in my mind, I was like, I got to live out here. And then secondly, my um, colleague, who is just an amazing human, she was like, hey, my family has this trailer on our property and you can you could stay there. Like, why don't you just crash a couple nights out on the property and then you can like save yourself gas. And also then you're just there to get to work in the morning. and. Um, I was not, I was still a night owl, so it was hard, like those 8 a.m. starts were never 8 a.m. starts for me, um, and, uh, but it worked out, like, so I, I slept in the valley two to three nights a week, and um, it was really great, so I did that through the beginning of the 2012 harvest, and then after harvest, I had promised the bar, I'd work there through January, and then worked through January at the bar, and then 
was doing basically seven days a week of working in both those situations um, until then. And then I started working at Ransom on Monday through Friday, and that was like getting a little used to like working Monday through Friday. But um, in order to do that, I mean, I, I definitely camped out uh, three, and definitely towards the end, I was like, I would say, you know, Monday through Thursday in the trailer, and, um, uh, and then go home Friday. Which was, you know, semi-straining on the relationship. I feel like we're very independent, but you know, there's a dependency on seeing your your partner and you know, spending that much time. It was like that felt like a sacrifice in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so tell me how the rest of your time at <clears throat> at Ransom unfolded. I mean, really well. Like I felt very confident after the 2012 harvest of just like having seen three in the space, and that was the fourth. Like seeing what it took to do that and like understanding the you know the the responsibility felt better like it was like hey can you do these tasks like yeah i don't need to have my hand held through them or i'm not just bound to the pressure washer and scrubbing bins like um and doing punch downs and the manual label side of things and then um you know there was another thing that i was really drawn to at ransom that fit and i knew there was possibility and that was the spirit side of the operation which was really interesting i mean that that made that production just constant it was year round like it in some ways i loved that i was like oh yeah it's like harvest year round you know like the only time it's not harvest in the distillery is during grape harvest but once things slow down in the winery you just like ramp up in the distillery and and they were seeing a moment of significant growth um so 2013 was a big year of like learning a lot about you know what was happening in the vineyard and how that vineyard was being established and planted and all that that took which mm-hmm. was a lot i mean there were a lot of things that we were doing and we we're like whoa that that took two weeks and that's like two weeks gone out of a season and i you know you would always be like we're losing time and i'm like i feel like all we have is time but then you you know every year in wine like and at that time 2013 was this pretty warm year and dry and like things were accelerating faster i was like okay this is a this is an interesting transition where now I'm really in tune because this is my job, but like I'm working outside of like how the seasons interact and they don't, it's not uniformed every year. Um, so that was a game changer. And then obviously that year had a big weather impact that definitely raised some alarms and um, threw some challenges and then towards the end of the growing season. And um, But I felt really maybe more connected to like mother nature than ever in my whole life and more connected and like almost very proud of the work that I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was really exciting. And then I, um, come 2014, we, again, were doing more. Like I think the distillery really started ramping up and then we started growing our own barley and it just seemed like we had this like ecosystem of like, there were, there was never enough hours in the day. And I, I was easily drawn into like, okay, let's work as hard as possible and just do all the things. And, um, I think Tad really had a respect for really hard work and, um, and, you know, I had like this amazement for this guy who was just, who had started this from nothing and, you know, maybe the dream of my own thing like that in my head where it's just like, all right, if like, if if he likes hard work, then let's just work harder. How? I don't know, but like, let's just keep going. And, uh. And that year, um, I had convinced my wife to move. So at the end of the 2013 harvest, I'd convinced her to rent a place in McMinnville, and she would commute back to Portland. And so, you know, there was a lot of a lot of things had just again in these like phases, like continually worked out really well. Um, and then in 2015, my wife and I were getting married. That was a really exciting time, um, and I was, um, you know 
in my personal life in like the best place possible, like in this, in kind of the growth and like this relationship and where I wanted to see our, our kind of like, you know, fate and destiny lay out and these steps and checking all these boxes. And then, um, I at work was doing well and I had the opportunity to kind of like step into more, um, significant role in the distillery and being kind of the assistant to the assistant distiller. And, um, and that was really exciting for me because it just felt like the, if I was trying to learn everything about wine, I now had this opportunity to learn everything about spirits and I knew how to apply them. You know, I was a great, I'd still mix cocktails mostly for friends at that point or just special events. But like, I, I really was drawn to learning as much about fermentation and then kind of like having these two end outlets of where they could go. That was, uh, exciting. And so, but also, you know, again, then you're working harvest all 365 days a year is, was, was pretty intense. So, so what caused you to take it, to take the next step? Okay. I, um, I worked at ransom until the beginning of 2018. And at that point I had like, at, at some transitional point, the assistant distiller had left and I had the opportunity to kind of step in to be the assistant distiller and just keep it going. And she had done, I don't want to say she, in her mind, had the succession plan set up. And um, in some ways, I don't even know if Tad had the uh, a stamp of approval on that, but it, it just, it happened. And then he, I spent some time with him and he was like, you've clearly absorbed what we're doing here and like have at it. And he would definitely, um, I mean, that was a lot, that was a big bonding phase for us, but we, and then eventually I just like, Julie Catch was running the winery and I was running the distillery and Tad was like, you know, if he wasn't out trying to sell the products and all the different markets that we were in and Ransom had grown, I mean, when I started there my first year, there were like 5,000 cases combined and we were bottling about 18,000 cases a year. It was, it was intense. Like it was a significant growth in a short period of time and it forced us to be perfect in many ways. There wasn't room for error and it forced us to grow at this like rapid rate but like honestly i felt very proud of what we were doing and it was really exciting um and then come the beginning of 2018 i just i think i there was a side of me that felt like i that i wasn't being fulfilled and that was i came from hospitality and i came from bartending and i i, I like that like i didn't know that i needed that to feel normal but like the reward of like providing an experience for someone or um honestly making somebody's day or you know it's just like i feel like i have all these skills and i'm in a cellar all the time by myself for weeks on end i mean that started drawing a little strain on me where it's mm -hmm. like huh and i remember like the buildup of being like you know I, I had this thing where it was like if i serve somebody a cocktail like my goal is that they're gonna respond with this is the best cocktail I've ever had, which happened a lot. You know, it was just like this instant gratification of like, I'm, I'm very good at this and you get this instant reward. And then you go to the production side of things and there's just so much pride in what you're doing and you're learning and you're absorbing all these things, but then you're like, smokes, like I, I don't get to share this with anybody for, you know, if it's spirits, I mean, if it's gin, maybe to market in three months, if it was the barrel aged gin, maybe a year, a year and a half. If it was whiskey, who knows when? Like, you know, I was just not getting this like thing that was like, you know, fueling me. Um, 
and eventually I started to get that with wine. Once like wines that I had been part of, like we're getting to them, or I'd send a bottle to a friend for a birthday, and you know you get that like Instagram message or text message or something. It's just like that. That was so cool, and it was amazing. I was so proud of you. And it's like that's cool, but it, it just I felt like something was missing, mm-hmm. and uh, so I needed to make a change. And I, I reached out to a friend that was opening up a restaurant in the valley, and um, I said I want to be a part of that and see that it seems like exciting and, and I jumped on board for that but it didn't turn out to be exactly what I wanted it to be nor did it really um, fuel me in the way that I was hoping but I think in that I also um, it stemmed something that was just I needed to continue learning mm-hmm. and I needed to see something else to kind of continue to progress in whatever that final direction was I, I don't know I mean in some ways I say like I still don't know what I want to do but I'm okay with it because, again, if I'm using like the metaphor of these like master sommeliers when I was when I was 21, you know, there was like the 27 year old and the 70 year old. I was like, I want to be the 70 year old. So as long as I'm just doing something within this and moving forward, then I'm I'm on the right path. So, see, so, yeah, so I uh, uh, I left Ransom in 2018, and then I worked at a restaurant for the rest of the year. It ended up closing, and then um, I went and did a um, spirit study course. I'd been trying to get into it. There's a course called the Bar Five Day Program. It stands for Beverage Alcohol Resources, and it, it was founded by two master sommeliers. One of them, a master sommelier, master wine, Doug Frost, um, and they built this spirits program and cocktail program that was um, meant to embody the core of master sommeliers and give you a master level uh, certificate because there wasn't anything like that in bartending and or in the, the spirits world. Um, and they wanted you to be able to, um, I mean, it was like, they used to only do 30 people a year. And so it was really hard to get into. I mean, I remember the first time I applied, I didn't even get a response back. And like the third time I replied, they're like, you'll be on the wait list. And then there was a connection at Ransom with one of the the founders. who was the kind of historian that gave Tad the idea. And they were, they were called friends on how to, on, on the barrel aged gin and kind of revitalizing this old spirits category. And, um, I remember like asking him and he was like, I can't get you in this year, but I'll get you in next year. And I was like, okay, cool. And then eventually that like acceptance letter came and I was like, okay, cool. And then I was like, woof, I got to save up money. I mean, it's not, in, it wasn't inexpensive and it was a week in New York, but it was something that at this point, I mean, I was so far removed from completing college and ever enrolling in college again, but it was like, I need to do, I need to get these, I need to check these boxes. Like these are check marks for me that say that I've, I've given more to the wine industry or the spirits industry in a way that is education that I've absorbed. And, um, I mean, maybe my parents needed that more than me, but I I felt like it was a thing that I needed to do. Mm -hmm. And so I, I went and did that. And, um, while we were there, I remember in the, in a class, um, we were tasting some whiskeys and it was definitely like, I know this product. I know exactly what it is because I made it. And you know, they were like, does anybody want to say what it is? And part of me was like, I should really, I should speak up, you know, like I wrote it down, but it was like, I was in the back row and I was like, and then I was like telling my friend, I was like, yeah, was like, this is, this is one of the ransom whiskeys. This is, you know, the new one that we made. And he's like, well, say something. And I was like, and then the teacher was, I think he was trying to get it. Like, does anybody in this room like know <laughs> what this is? And then finally I was like, all right, I got to say something. And I was like, it was. And then he just like shouted it out. And I was like, oh, I missed my chance to impress this whole class. But at least I knew. And maybe that's part of my journey is, you know, as long as I know. But um, 
but it was really exciting. The response in the class was like, people lit up. They were like, wow, this guy's doing some incredible work. Like, this whiskey is unlike anything else anybody had tasted. I mean, people were really, really impressed. And I felt that moment of pride again, you know, it's like, holy, I, I helped that. Like, that. how cool is that? Um, and I remember I had text Ted when I went to class and I was like, I'm in New York, because, you know, he's friends with the, the founder. And, he texted me that day and it was like, hey, like, I hope class is going really well. I want to talk to you when you get home. And I just thought like, oh no, this is like, this feels like that, you know, wine in this industry is bigger than it. Like it, like I didn't even tell him that this thing happened today and maybe he's offered me a job again. Like maybe I should go back to that. Um, and so I did. And when I came home, I talked to him and I took a job and I went back to Ransom in 2019 and this is in the January and um, and then upon the completion of that spirits course which I was um, definitely overwhelmed by I mean it's like a master level spirits course I mean there's a blind tasting of spirits and there are um, theory questions and essay questions and it was intense you know it's a week we tasted 187 spirits in four days like and then you had to do a, a practical, you know, you had to make seven cocktails in 10 minutes for a judge who you probably idolize. It's nerve wracking. And like, it felt, you know, I hadn't bartended for but one year prior to that, but not anything for six years before that. And it was just like, okay, like, uh, this feels a little insane. But I mean, when I finished it, I was like, I feel like everything I put into bartending, like I can kind of put that behind me because I feel good about passing it. And I eventually got those results and I, I passed and I felt great about it. And, uh, and then I was like, I need to just go into wine on this side. Like maybe that's the next thing. And so I enrolled for the WSET classes in Portland with uh, Mimi Martin. And um, I enrolled in those in WSET two and three and I ended up skipping two, but, and I just went straight into three. And it was like, that program was a little more digestible than like just one condensed in one week. It was like 13 weeks, but there were two hour classes. and. Um, I had convinced, I had communicated with Tad that, you know, I was, I had enrolled to just do it right when I got home in January, but the way the schedule worked, he asked if I could delay it till fall and it meant that I would leave during, you know, one day a week during harvest, but I would drive to Portland and take those classes. And then the wine thing just started going off again in a way that I was like, I'm having all these memories of being young. I really haven't exposed myself to this. You work in wine cellars in the area and you learn so much and you learn so much about your neighbors and what other people are doing. And you read about wines from other places and you drink wines from other places, but I wasn't having a way to like put in context. Mm -hmm. And um, that class really kind of like opened up that it was like, hey, like your initial process and goal was to move to Oregon to learn about winemaking to maybe go back to being a sommelier and maybe having being a sommelier and bartender kind of like finding an opportunity in that and um and so I definitely in that class was like I two things I feel like I'm I've gotten to a level where I've learned a lot and this class felt very um digestible for me even though I hadn't really studied wine in that way for a long time um, but I, my experiences helped me understand it better than I'd ever. And, you know, like sometimes in wine, you're just like, I don't know if I'm getting this. And then one day they just like light bulb goes off. And you're like, you get this. Like, I know what that smells like, or I know how to register that in my memory. And, um, that class felt really easy in a way that it was like, I want to do a couple things. I want to push further in these like advanced courses. And I want to, um, I want to maybe give back. I finally hit a point where I was like, I had beverage mentors and I've looked at people like they were mentors for a long time. And then it was like, maybe I'm at a point where I can do that for others. Um, 
maybe I should. So, so yeah. So then uh, after 2019, um, and spending that year at Ransom, I, um, it was like, I had all I'd wanted to, was to get to like management level at a winery and like think that was the career path. And then it was like, I think what I'm actually more interested in is like, I need to know more about the world of wine. And I can only think of a couple outlets that are faster than that. One would be working in restaurants, going back to being a Psalm, which at this point I had a young child. I'm mean, a one-year-old and I was like, I don't really want to commit my nights. The other was, um, I hadn't even thought about wine retail, but was distribution work. And I, one part of working at Ransom and getting to that point was that I, I wanted to do more work in the markets. And I, I got to travel a little bit. I got to work in some markets and that was exciting. But um, I think w dealing with distributors directly, was like, oh, we complain about them all the time. <laughs> they never sell enough or, or like, you know, the cool thing that we make, like, why wouldn't they want to sell that? You know, like, why wouldn't a market understand why would they buy all the Pinot Gris if they could buy Albarino from the Willamette Valley? Like, how does this make sense? But it's like, I've been complaining about it, just like most of my colleagues in this area. Like, you know, we're trying to get Pinot Noir on the map, and that is, but then it's like the only thing people want to buy, and there's all these other things, which is really exciting. It's like, I, maybe I should spend some time in that and, and at least learn how that operation works. Um, so then my career path went to, to wine distribution, um, which, was great. I mean, I, I liked it. When you were thinking of heading that way, where did you where did you want to be, and what kind of wines did you want to distribute, and yeah. where did you end up? Um, I think one thing I quickly saw was it was hard to get a job um, in that, even with all the loads of experience that I had and all the different outlets. Um, and this is you know the end of 2019. Um, and there was a company that I really wanted to work for. We worked with them in a lot of markets in Ferranza, but they, um, it seemed like there was an opportunity with them and then they dissolved, you know, they didn't make it in the state of Oregon. Um, so I was kind of shopping around and then, um, I, I was like, I just will work anywhere. And then I got a job at Southern Glazers and, um, I had, you know, in some ways, they are the biggest and the baddest, and they have some of the best. But in a lot of ways, what you don't realize without kind of going to it blind is like, they also have, they dominate 90% of the grocery stores. So there's, I didn't find a whole lot of satisfaction selling box wine, but I had to start somewhere. Um, and that window, it ended pretty quickly. I mean, that was 2020. So COVID happened, which I felt like was a blessing because I learned a couple staples of working in big distribution, but I, you know, in some of the points, but I, I felt like I already had a, a tear up because I had some experience doing line sales with a small brand in other markets, working with smaller distributors. And it was like, I need to work for a smaller distributor. Somebody who's more focused on say quality, probably doesn't have as many customers, but like specializes in things. So I, um, got a job working for a wine distributor called Handcrafted, um, and they were, they specialized in um, Northwest wines, particularly Washington is kind of what built their brand, and um, they represented a lot of like the best wineries in Walla Walla, and I was like, hey, here's an opportunity, like I don't really know anything about that area. It's a neighboring state, I've never traveled there. I mean, I when I first started, I was like, I didn't even know the Columbia Valley 
covered all of the wine growing regions except for the Puget Sound in Washington. Um, so that gave me that kind of like feel. It was like I I need to know about this. Like mm -hmm. and now I'm I'm being filled on one side about like the self study and learning more, and then the, the other side like I mean in wine distribution if you work at the right place like you'll taste as many wines as you possibly can or want to, and I wanted to taste a lot, um, and so I started. Um, I mean, I would taste cases of wine a week, and I started working this. The, this was my area, working in the Willamette Valley, and that also felt like a little bit of a leg up because I'd been here for long enough that I knew most of the restaurant owners and I knew most of the people in this area, and um, and it was that was really great. And then simultaneously, I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna continue wine study, so I entered the WSET diploma program, um, and that was um, they both were fantastic. Yeah. So you mentioned dis distribution as a as a uh, a complaining point for a lot of people in the mm -hmm. industry. Mm -hmm. We've of course heard that in our, in our conversations as well. What did you learn about being on that side of it? Yeah, it's like so I can I can defend both. You know? <laughs> I can defend the side where like I wish you sold more wine, and then I can see the side of like you know I I mean I think the eye opening thing and a lot of people have probably heard this. It really takes seeing it, but it's like I mean when I first started, I pulled samples of the things that I was interested in. And it took a while to recognize that what I thought was cool would translate to a few people. But mostly, if you wanted to sell wine, which translates to making an income, you need to find out how to sell things. And I think it's hard to sell things that you don't really believe in or don't want to drink yourself. Um, but the minute I caved to selling some bag and box wine, and the minute I started seeing opportunity that was like, you know, price conscious um, and, and giving those wines a fair chance, the minute I just, my numbers just skyrocket. And it was like, okay, here's the truth of it. Like, this is how you, it's, I, I can think of things a lot, like I'm, I'm fairly competitive. So like if I frame it in my mind, like it's a game and I have to beat it, like that was, that was probably a lot of the process. Um, and then in that, it was like, once you establish that, then you can start really filling in the things that satisfy you. So we say like it's two for this, you know, two for the drinking culture and one for me every time I'm selling something. And um, but also you're you're gaining people's trust, and that is a big deal. You know, before you can just come in and tell somebody about this cool Swiss wine, you know, they're probably like, how the hell am I going to sell that? You know, if you can guide them into the things of your interest and talk about producers and maybe get them to feel confident speaking about a producer that. Um, you know, they didn't know about earlier and probably requires a story to be told. But like once they get the confidence in doing that, then maybe they could have the confidence talking about something that they're just like not comfortable with or knowing anything about. And maybe because the relationship's evolving, they're willing to put the time and effort into, um, you know, what your interests are. And then, and then I saw that. And I mean, honestly, a lot of that was Washington State wine. It was mm -hmm. like, I, we're all penophiles in the valley and I get it. Like it's the, it's my epiphany wine. Like the wine is, the wines of this area are on a tier that is very, very high, and there is a lot of it, and it's really, really great. Um, and we talk about supporting, you know, the Northwest, but like there were a lot of people that did not want to carry wines from Walla Walla. Um, but once they got some exposure to some things, I mean, there were certain wines from that area that I think stand up on on the pedestal of uh, of, of what's happening here. Mm -hmm. I think it was um, that was that became fun. Mm -hmm. 
And you talked about WSET Diploma at the yeah. same time. Obviously, that's that's quite a quite a investment in, in time and energy. Mm -hmm. uh, how is how has it gone, and what has your what has your yeah. takeaway been from it? Um, it's been fantastic. I mean, I encourage anyone that wants to pursue further education. I mean, it's a definite financial commitment, but it's a definite time commitment. And I I said it earlier. I'm a terrible student, so I don't commit as much time as others and. Um, and thankfully, it's it's working out. Like I've, I think I've committed to time to this, my own process and at, on my own pace and taking in information as I have for as long as I have. That some of it has just stuck. But I, um, I mean, it is a challenge. And like we, I just we just had a, uh, I just had a class this past week, and there was a diploma party for diploma students that a number of students attended, and we all went and had dinner afterwards. And um, and you know they asked us to like describe it in one word. And I was like, I have to mention study because like, I, I don't do it. But um, the word that I liked the most was humbling. You know, it's, it is. I mean, it's a lot of information and it's a lot to take in and it's very stressful. And, you know, the fear of failing is um, everybody handles it differently. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think for me, I was like, I, I mean, blind tasting is, is, in some ways to me I like view it as a sport and I want a competition and I want to beat it but um, it is you have to be comfortable failing at that a lot and I think I see how people handle that differently and um, it's gone well so far for me so I'm happy and I, I will I will continue to try a little bit harder in my studies <laughs> but um, it was there's so much information it's hard to hold it all in but I think the exposure to all the information and all the brilliant people who can talk about and specialize in places or, you know, I mean, I think that's, that is another part of the journey of getting to be that 70 year old. Like, you know, I, there were a couple people in that class, like if they're ever teaching classes in this area, they don't live in this area, but like I would go listen to their lecture and they were just magnetic in the way they spoke about stuff and so impassioned that it like, every once in a while, it's good to add a little fill to your fire and, and some people, there are people that can really do that. Um, mm -hmm. And that was exciting. And then, um, you know, again, thinking of it a little bit as a competition, like you gotta put yourself out there to like, it's okay to fail, but you know, it's it's not okay to not try in my eyes. So, mm -hmm. you know, having to put what I feel confident behind in myself and my own self-belief, like you gotta, I, I feel like you gotta put it out there and, and uh, it's going well. So tell me about how Antiquatera became part of the part of okay. the journey as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, like for many, I feel like there's this mystique about Antiquatera, um, and I definitely had the chance to experience some of the wines. I've had a number of friends who've worked harvest there, and um, you know, tasting the wines that they were either a part of or the wines that they received from when they were working there. I, I specifically, I mean, I have like about five memories of like you know casually hanging out with all your friends for a summer afternoon party or whatever it is at dinner at a friend's house and like having the bottle share and like you know touching the bottle I think was like oh that's the artwork is you know there's something about this but also just tasting those wines like this is different and it stands out and most of those times I remember like wow that wine was unlike anything else I've ever tried and really really like it felt special um so while working distribution and working in this area, the connection was just um, through working with them. They were a, a, a customer and they 
I didn't really know a whole lot about the program, but I knew that they poured other wines, so there was an opportunity to work with them in selling them some, some mm -hmm. um, really great wines from around the world, and particularly from a couple importers. And that um, when you're paying attention to all the things around you to be better, you'll pay attention to who's buying certain wines. And there were some wines that they were interested in and had inquired about and that they purchased. And I remember asking um, somebody on the team, like, hey, what, you, you bought all that wine. Like, you know, it's a fair amount of a very expensive bottle. Like, you could, you could deem it expensive in terms of price because it was a producer that I didn't really know anything about. And some people on my team at Handcrafted, like, they were like, this is the guy. Like, he, it's just magical what he does. He's a special person in this area. But I mean, these wines were significantly more expensive than those most everything else in the book and you know they felt honored to get to buy them and that was that that felt like okay there's something here like you know i'm just not in the know but like i think maggie's in the know and then you know i asked like hey what'd you do with that wine and i said oh we sold it to our clients like we poured it i said you poured it like you know if i'm thinking just the cost of that wine and going back to restaurants like in the, the markup on that like wow but he's like, no, no, it's like, it's part of our flights. And we talk about how this interacts in with some of the wines that we pour and the wines that we make. And, and then we like just sharing delicious wine with, from cool places. And from, you know, most people might not know this, but people should know this. And it was, that kind of got my attention. I'm like, okay, that's, that's special. That's different. Um, and then over the course of my time working distribution, working with them more and more, and, trying to find wines for them and hunting them down. It's like, oh, I, I like our relationship going this way, but like, wow, what y'all are doing is so different. Mm -hmm. And um, and then eventually it just came up. I, I just happened to be delivering wine one day and um, I tasted a couple wines with them and I was just like, wow, those wines are so cool and this flight is incredible. And then they're like, oh yeah, we're just, we're looking for somebody and we kind of like things word of mouth. And um, if you know anybody, like we're, we're growing our team, you should, and I was like, I, I know somebody <laughs> and I was like I'll, I'll, I'll call them but I got in the car and I was like I think that's me um, and then I, I then definitely uh, reached out to them about the opportunity to join their team and it's hard because I had I mean I mean I worked with Tad for eight years and I worked at uh, the bar I worked at the teardrop for two years and prior to that when I was in Las Vegas I worked at this restaurant for five years and I was like I see the advantage of bouncing around and seeing the, the kind of getting to tap into the minds of a lot of people but I also see this like I don't want to say loyalty connection but like just like the idea of um, if you're engaged with the person that's mentoring you like giving them the commitment of time is like um, you, you gain more out of it so I've, I always found value in staying long term and I was like just really getting going in distribution where I thought I was, doing, I was doing really well. And I felt, again, like part of it was the commitment of time to the area, earning trust and, and making connections um, with your, with your you know, partners in the market. But also I, a lot of what I w thought I would need to know to get to the next level, I don't know, portfolio management or district management, I, I think I had already taken in from just all the other experiences that I had. And, and I was like, do I want to, that seems like the logical path. Like that seems like the next step in distribution. And I said, I was going to, in my mind, I was like, maybe I'm on a new five-year plan, like spend some time in distribution, try and do a few other things and like see where the sales route goes and then, and then likely come back to wineries. 
but in that moment I just felt like maybe what I'm also interested in is still hospitality and, and pursuing similar accreditations and um, and maybe they seem like that's the right path like or it just seems like maybe something about the mystique of what's happening in Terra. I, I have to be a part of that mm -hmm. um, and then when I did join the team I mean it's been like it's been epic mm -hmm. there there's something there is something special going on there and there you know, they joke about being magic makers but they really are like and the wines that we get to share with people are you know I mean they're not really comparable to anything else I've ever had the chance to work with and that includes working with that 800 page list like granted I didn't really know what it was or 800 balls Las Vegas like I got to taste a lot of wines that you know sometimes I would joke and like people like oh have you ever tried uh I don't know this wine from this producer was like well I've only tried the best one you know like like well, how it's like I don't know we opened it at work or like I remember one time at um we were doing a champagne class and I like they were like I had to fake sell a bottle of wine you know we're staff education and, and I was like selling I was like yeah you want the salon uh, you want the 95 salon like and the, the you know somebody was like of course I want that like talking about this and I was like well yeah that champagne's like it's not the most expensive on the menu but it's up there but I hear the way they all talk about it it's like well okay now you have to open it and then I was thinking like oh well, we're gonna get a dummy bottle and he was like no open it <laughs> and then I opened the bottle of salon and I was like shared it with my you know then I was like do I get to taste this like well, like of course you picked it you know and it was part of his education i think he had some like he tasting allowances built in so well you know i got to taste salon and this, like i was 23 and i was like whoa i've still yet to taste it since but uh, <laughs> but it was just like that impression like i was like those are really cool ones well i think what we've been doing at antiquity and sharing with our clients is like is even above that and beyond that and like um, and it's exciting and people come excited. I think that's a really special part is that the engagement for what's going on there, you know, I think it's mostly grown organically and word of mouth. And I think it's also grown because Maggie's connected with the Sunlight community. And there are a lot of storytellers that like myself that like talking about these other producers and sharing people or turning people onto wines that maybe they wouldn't always go for or that unknown region that they weren't familiar with or the varietal, all those things like that kind of lights me up and I, I feel like we get to do that on a daily basis in our program there and it is really really special about uh few hospitality equaling trust and mm -hmm. so i'm curious about now that you're back in hospitality and at Ticatera, mm -hmm. how does that play out and what in your experiences so far has been the sort of what is the hospitality that Anticaterra offers? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think the pedigree and prestige of what's happening in that program, I think there's this reputation like, oh, it's amazing. It's got all these things. I mean, I think it really it wouldn't be successful without the kind of I think genuine hospitality and like excitement for people coming to be a part of it if we were if they were just being like oh we're the best and this is what it is and i mean there are wineries that, that do that and they can continue doing that and i think there it feels you know Maggie, like there's never been a script to follow it's been like talk about what you want to talk about that applies to what we do i mean here's the story like that's the story but it doesn't have to be about that and you know i i remember asking like well why do we like where did the whole thing about pouring these other wines came from? And I was like, well, I used to host all the tastings myself. Like, 
I couldn't just talk about my wine all the time. I'd go crazy. Like, you know, it's like I wanted to pour something. So, like, at least there's something new that excited me, you know, like, and, and every day was different. Like, that's it's like, oh, yeah, I, I can relate to that. Like, I think my fear of working in wineries full time on the hospitality side has always just been like, no matter how much you don't want to say, I mean, I never wanted to serve the same cocktail to the two guests sitting side by side or let alone anybody at the bar. I mean, I know with 2000 drinks, why would I want to put three on the bar at all times like that was kind of my mindset like when talking about wine and trying to make it relatable to somebody like I don't want to say the same thing over again but when you pour the same five wines all the time it's hard not to just hit those talking points because some things stick more than others and that I think is what's so kind of special is like I mean every day is different Um, and there is usually a very thoughtful way to incorporate these off the beaten path wines or or why we selected these wines and how they interact with the wines made at Antiquitera but um, I think there are a couple elements. I mean, you show up from the outside. Most people are like, what? Take people inside. They're like, taken away. And then you start telling the story and people are really, um, I mean, I've never seen a customer and clientele base so engaged and like really, really intrigued in like everything that you have to say in a way that it's not like formulating like, oh yeah, I have my own thoughts. Or it's a really, I think, amazing that I think the approach to the way they make wine there is so non-conventional that a lot of people that really get into wine really want to know everything about it. So when they start asking very common questions like clonal material or whole cluster, you know, uh, percentages or percentage of, you know, new versus used oak or all those things that don't really apply to the overall picture of what's happening there. Um, it's it's oh, you can see like kind of the flicker in people's mm-hmm. eyes where they're like they're like puzzled by it but then excited by it um and again i mean like there's like the best wine in the world it, it tastes okay if somebody serves it to you with an attitude you know and like things that are okay taste pretty good when they're served with a smile so when you kind of combined i think really serious and professional hospitality and genuine hospitality um that feels humbled because the guests came to see you and then you put just world-class things on top of that and incredible cuisine prepared by the chef and all these things. It's just like, it's, it doesn't surprise me that every time somebody leaves that like, this was just so amazing. I thank you so much. It's, it feels, um, like organically really just special Mm -hmm. in a way. So we've, you've talked about kind of your sort of personal life and, and professional life progression and now married with married with a couple of kids. Congratulations on oh. your recent arrival, by the way. Thank you, thank you. Uh, and doing WSET, gone through kind of a lot of spots. Mm-hmm. So as you sit now and look ahead, like what is next? What mm-hmm. what do you want to do next in, in the world of wine and beyond? Yeah, I um, sometimes it bothers me that where I'm at in my life and my age, I... I mean, that I don't know the answer to that. But in some ways, again, like, I'm thinking about it, like, I keep using this reference of this, like, sophisticated, polished master who was seven years old and, you know, still took his jacket off to put it on somebody if they were cold or to lay it on someone's seat or to pull everybody's seat out or or to stand up every time, you know, somebody at the table excuse themselves to go to the bathroom. And um, I just, all those things, I'm like, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but I'm trying to get there. But I do, I think something that I'm really engaged is, I mean, I want to get through this WSET Diploma program. It should be wrapped up by January of 2023. 
pending results, I feel fairly confident in, in my capabilities. So hopefully it will be wrapped up by the early spring. Um, and in that, like, I, I thought that checkbox, you know, would, whether that opens up another opportunity or the door, like, that would be great. But, I mean, I... I feel like there's still more to be had. I definitely will say that in the pursuit of master, which is not something that I, I don't admit this often, but I think is something that I would like to pursue. I just, I know that, you know, I think a lot of people finish this program and enroll for the master wine program. And I can safely say that I don't think the master wine program is for me. I don't know that yet, but I, I, I'm pretty sure it's not. I'm not a very good student. Um, <laughs> it seems like it's set up for academics or, or but potentially down the line, that might be something that would, I'd be interested in. I think pursuing other avenues of, you know, the Court of Mass Assemblies, and, and I started that more than 10 years ago, but got to restart it all over again, but maybe going that, that seems a little more like showing your credentials and where you are, and I feel good about that. Um, but also, I think taking the opportunity and having the WSEP behind me may just be the thing that others need to, like, feel like the credential that they want to learn from me or that I have something to give to them. Um, and so whether that's directly working with colleagues in, in a tasting room or indirectly like teaching classes, um, I, I think I, that's somewhere I see myself in the next couple years wanting to do. Not necessarily full time, but definitely as, um, I mean, I, you know, I, every time I'm like, I, my three most important mentors, I'm like, no, I have like six. <laughs> and if I really want to think about it, I have like 15, like all these people who have in some way, shape or form, like influenced me, whether it was small and they're a friend and I just respect their work or whether it was like somebody who like gave me that pep talk before an exam or a blind tasting or a cocktail competition, you know, like I, I would like to provide that for others. Um, Cause I think some people just need a little empowerment to like know that they have the confidence to get move forward. and. I like doing that. I mean, I think there's no greater reward, at least for me, than just like helping somebody along, whether that's like in life or, or at, at a meal and they're just so happy or changing somebody's bad day into a, a great evening and like uh, all those things. Mm -hmm. Spent a lot of time in production. Is that something you want to go back into? <laughs> that one, I, I, it's not, um, I tucked away in the closet, but I haven't buried it. I have a dream. I mean, I think like I um, would love to find a way to tie in my heritage. And th I mean, that's I'm Japanese. My father's from England, but like I think having some way to embody Japanese, whether that's cuisine or restaurant or something, or or just maybe just like mentality and approach to generosity and or um, something with that. And I think um, the, like, influence of, I mean, I've never even been to Europe, but I feel like I'm influenced by Europe in, in a lot of ways of, like, you know, I, I still go to, I, we're not really, like, big grocery shoppers. We, like, we're daily shoppers. Like, it's like, I don't know what I want to eat for dinner until I wake up the next morning, but it's usually the first thing I talk about. But, like, going to the market is part of that experience. And I think having a way to tie that into um, what I do in the future and what I'm getting to that is just like, I love the idea of making things. I, I feel like, you know, at one point I was like, I want to make my own wine and I want to have my own wine label. Well, 
I'm not in a rush for that. There are a lot of people that are doing that right now. And there are a lot of people that are really great at doing that. And I, I learned in winemaking, I was like, most of my friends were way better at it than I was. Um, but distilling spirits one day, like if you can make wine, you know, why wouldn't I want like a few trees and like make plum wine or, you know, or plum uh, brandy or why wouldn't I want to make apple brandy? And, you know, it's like, I'm like, could I make a living being a, a, a domestic apple brandy producer? Like, I mean, Clear Creek did and they did it really well, but they've always been tiny. And I mean, they've been doing it as long as I've been alive. That might not be the dream. It's I'm not afraid of that, but like I think the ability to make something that I can either enjoy myself and just share with friends or eventually turn into something, I mean, I, I definitely, that is still a dream, and it's very much alive. I just don't know if I'll ever put it all together to do that. So earlier on, we talked about your initial impressions of, of Oregon wine before mm -hmm. coming here and mm -hmm. once you were here. Tell me about how the industry's changed in the time you've been here, yeah. um, especially the impact of the past couple of years on the industry, mm -hmm. and what does it look like now in 2022? Um, the, what I love, I know there's like some camps of this thought, but like, I mean, Pinot is what brings people here, and it's delicious, and it's incredible, and it still yet has like, a further reach in a lot of ways. Um, I think that is exciting. I like the idea of this cellar diversity and having other things like, you know, the few people who can comfortably say like, is it Pinot? Is it the, does it have to be the only thing? Can there be other things? Can we have opportunity? It's clearly working, but wouldn't it be fun if there were other things? Like I, I'm on that camp. Like I, I want to see some other things. I like trying other things. I'm more inclined to go to somebody, if I were to go to somebody's tasting room, to buy like the unusual thing, like, or maybe seek that winery for the unusual thing. Um, I mean, that said, I like drink Pinot Noir at home all the time <laughs> and it's delicious. Um, but I would, I would like to see potentially something else. Um, I like the, so potential for new things, other opportunities, within wine and in this area. I, I do like tradition. I like legacy as well. So like, I think, you know, I mean, I'm looking out at this vineyard right now and I'm like, I mean, this vineyard's magical and it has been for a long time. Like, that's special. I think the celebration of some of those things, whether they're big or small, um, I would like to see that continue on rather than the trend of you know, I'm not that interested in what the next hard seltzer is from this area or who's going to do that and when they're going to do that. Like, um, those things don't excite me. I, I like, I'm not a, I'm not bound to tradition, but I like the idea of tradition. So, um, and then I think Oregon wine is, I mean, it's a really exciting thing. I think in some ways we're talking about other places and, uh, and I like point because I'm pointing down south, but like, you know, there's some stuff happening there that I think is really exciting. I think there's some producers that are finally getting like the um, recognition of what their work embodies. And I think, I think using platforms to raise awareness, a, one for brand, but for other causes. I mean, I think of a couple producers that just have like, you know, a section of their proceeds goes to whether it's the planet or um, opportunity for people 
who you know have a hard time like whether they're coming out of prison or something like that like I think having um, social brand uh, endeavors that create opportunity that I hope is something that I, I see more now than ever and I see a need for it now more than ever and I hope that that continues I think that's a special thing I think um, in a lot of ways tying wine into a bigger picture beyond the vineyard and the winery and the winemaker I, I, I think Oregon is pushing that and I think we can continue to push that and I think that is something that would be really I mean good for the world of wine Hmm. Um, yeah, and then in, like right now in 2022, I, I, I looking around, like, I hope, um, you know, there are so many, like, I don't even know where to answer that question because I'm like, oh man, like the climate, you know, like that's a bigger thing. And Tanya talks a little bit about the, the, the changes of the ability to work towards the better goal in the end. But I mean, obviously we've had an interesting year with like a wet, spring and some cooler weather in the spring and erratic heat waves in the summer um, but I feel like you know the one thing that we all should know and if I feel like it was told for me from day one in working a wine it's like how's the season going well we don't know there's a whole lot of time left you know and and vintage is like 2013 you know a rainstorm can dramatically change the effect of that that entire vintage and that happened in a weekend and then 2020 like you know i mean i i'm still traumatized as most people are about just like the unfortunate timing of that happening and whether or not that's going to happen again or when it will happen again but i think um i think it's okay to take every day like step by step and just one foot in front of the other where i know there's a lot of want of control and I and I and I like to control because I like the quality of end result, but I almost I feel like when we start talking about controlling things, it, it that to me, part of what I love about wine is, is the kind of like what ifs and who knows and what I find in my own personal wine consumption is the, the more wine that I'm gravitating towards or like having a moment with is like the wines that, you know, in some way form or another the person behind it has has become more comfortable with less control mm -hmm. and that that's cool mm -hmm. so you mentioned climate obviously on mm -hmm. everyone's mind when it comes to wine uh, what else is sort of on your mind as you look ahead for the uh, Oregon industry specifically what comes next here and what are the biggest maybe challenges or opportunities awaiting Oregon wine um, I remember statistics saying you know we'd be like Oregon, the Oregon wine industry is 90% mom and pop. And then I see this, like 80% of the Oregon wine industry is mom and pop, or 90% of the wine industry in Oregon is, you know, Oregon standards boutique, 5,500 cases or less. And I was like 80, you know, like seeing this kind of shift and I'm okay with bigger business. I think that's broader awareness brings a lot of good things, but I, I am somewhat skeptic of that at times because that brings more severity of potential competition and the terms and themes of what, you know, the ugly side of business can bring. So it seems like everybody plays very well together for now and I like to see that. And I'm the type of person that's like, I wanna be friends with everybody and I, I don't really enjoy conflict and I kinda like, I wanna live in a world where that exists, but I know that that, you know, not everything's like me and nor would I want it to only just be like me. But um, I think that is 
something that I, I kind of stand back and be a wallflower of, but try to observe because I, I mean, have lived here for since 2010 and I have seen a significant change, obviously the rapid growth. And I think the rapid climb to success of, you know, brands and, and I think critic scores and, um, you know, those things. I mean, those things are good. Like when I was in distribution, I loved it. <laughs> I loved a 90-point score. But when I was a sommelier, I was like, I don't care. And, in, you know, nowadays I'm like, eh, there's a little bit of both. I would try and pride myself to never tell somebody what a score is of wine in, in order to sell it. But I think there are some moments of, like, applauding things. Like, there, I think that's, you know, I'm a, I like being on the top pedestal. I like winning competitions. Like, some of that is that. And I think that helps us. Um, as a whole industry. So. All right. That's all the questions that I have cool. for you. Is there anything else I should have asked that I didn't? Anything else you wanted to cover that we didn't cover? Um, no. I, I feel like we covered a lot. And so I feel like I've been talking so long, I'm like, I don't even really remember what I said. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I would say, like, the only thing I would end with, and I, I'm, I'm like to always say this, and um, it's kind of just like, like, I like to think of myself as an ambassador for the area, not just the winery I work at, although I feel special to work at the winery that I do work at. Um, and I do think, like, you know, all ships rise with the tide, so um, it's good to think about it as a whole. But one thing is, like, people... I hope the world and the drinking community finds that, like, wine is a very natural product and it is a very beautiful thing that can enhance your life. And um, I know that there's this like rise of like hard seltzers and I don't have like any, I don't drink them, but I know that they've done a really good job of marketing themselves as like the health beverage. And I just feel like wine has been that and has failed to get that recognition lately. But I mean, I'm looking around and like, I think of it as this agricultural product and I feel special living in the Willamette Valley of like, all this diversity of all of these agricultural products and I, I hope we as wine comes out on top of that kind of competition and recognition and then the thing I always like to tell people and like one of the things that I love most about wine is that wine is one of the few things that we can embody and put in our bodies and that it can has the ability to basically transcend you to you know a, a, a different time in the world or history whether that's older bottles or a celebration of an anniversary or a childbirth or all these special things like that's meaningful and impactful in a way that's special and then I think the other thing is like I reference like you know wine and food which I don't consider drinking I consider just like enjoyment and like they, sh they really do go well together but like you know a special meal with a special bottle can take you to a different place in the world that often you know I've never been to Europe but like I like eating octopus and drinking chocolate and I somehow feel like I'm like you know, in San Sebastian, or, you know, you have a beautiful meal, uh, it, you know, paired with something also, like, seasonally from the, or, or locally from that area, and, like, you feel suddenly like you might be there, or what it's like to be there, and there aren't many things in the world that we get to do that do that for us, um, and that, to me, is probably the magic of why I will always want to work with and why, so. Well said. Cool. Thank you so much for your time today, uh, for uh, hospitality on this beautiful space. And thank you again to Archery Summit for letting us use it. Yeah. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you very much, Rich. This was great. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. 
and thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.